Good morning, guys. Good morning. Worship. Um, in case you don't know me, uh, my name is JJ. I'm one of the family members here, and I'm extremely thankful to have the opportunity just to share the word with you and to, uh, to worship Christ with you. Um, so if you guys want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139, that's where we're going to be today. Psalm 139. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the uh, seat in front of you, hopefully. As some of you may know, it's nearly time again for one of the greatest competitions on planet Earth to take place. I'm sure some of you could guess, but uh, I won't make you guess. Um, I'm talking about the Olympics. The Summer Olympics are almost here. And this great competition brings you know, great victory and sorrowful defeat. Everyone's chasing the gold. Everyone is chasing perfection. But as some of you probably know more than others, uh, while perfection seems to be a noble goal, uh, the task of actually chasing perfection can leave us in some of the most miserable places. Leave us feeling burdened, exhausted. Can leave us feeling lonely. It can even leave us wondering if we're good enough. But then what do you think would happen if we were to find out that perfection actually was chasing us what do you think would uh, how do you think it would make you feel to know that perfection wanted you today in our text we're going to see just that happen through the eyes of David we'll see today that the Lord is perfect and that he has pursued both David and us perfectly if you're taking notes the main point that I want you guys to get from today is this God's perfect character and personal care should draw us to reject sin and rightly worship the Savior Jesus. God's perfect character and his personal care should draw us to reject sin and to rightly worship the Savior Jesus. And we're going to see this broken out, uh, this section, or this text broken out into four sections. Um, The first one's going to be God's perfect perception, his perfect knowledge, uh, in verses 1 through 6. God's perfect presence in 7 through 12. Uh, Then God's perfect power in 13 through 18 to perfection uh, from 19 through the end. So uh, let's go ahead and jump in our text and we'll read it together. Psalm 139, starting at the top, it says, O Lord, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and, and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as the day, or is, is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. 
You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it was divine and spoken and written by David so that we could set our eyes on who you are, God. And in response to who you are, God, what our, our response should be to reject sin. And God, to love you and to rightly worship you. We thank you, Lord, that you have cared greatest for us by giving us Christ Jesus. That you have loved us best by giving us Jesus. Lord, we pray, God, that as we continue our time, that you would make much of yourself through the words that are spoken here. That, God, your word would not return void, but it would truly affect the hearts of everyone listening. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, as we turn our eyes back to the first few verses of this psalm, to begin, written by a real person, and his name was David. And uh, we see that at, at, at the beginning, just before verse 1, it says it was written by David. Um, if you go read other parts of the Bible, then you kind of learn some about David that, um, you know, he was chosen by God to be the king of Israel, God's people at the time. He was uh, the one who slayed Goliath, uh, if you know that story. He wrote many of the Psalms in, in the Bible. Um, and God even calls him a man after his own heart. Uh, so in one sense, David is you know, this great hero. But then as we continue to read on in the Bible, we see that um, you know, David was anything but perfect. Even as we heard a sinner, David committed adultery. He, he lied. He even murdered someone to hide his sin. So while David was a great hero... And he was someone that was, um, you know, a man after God's own heart. Not even he could chase down perfection. He, like us, is just human. Now, I say all that because I want you guys to see something in this psalm. So while it is primarily about the Lord, the words I, me, and my show up in this psalm almost 50 times. 49 if you count. Um, so... As believers who trust in the Lord for salvation just as David did, that means that in this psalm we can insert our own names into nearly every place that David did. When we do that, we'll see that the beauty of who God is is intertwined with the reality that he acts beautifully towards us. In this psalm, we'll see that starting with God's perfect perception in verses 1 through 6. David begins to... God knows everything. You know, any, 
and every piece of information that could possibly be known, God knows it. But notice here that David doesn't just reveal that God knows all the things out there. No, he, he lists out how God knows all of him personally. So one way he does this is by using some easy-to-understand comparisons. Uh, and he'll do that throughout the rest of the chapter. But let's reread some of these comparisons here in verse 1. Uh, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So David's basically saying here that God knows him inside and out. It says says here that that God knows when he gets up to do something and when he's sitting down, not doing And it says that God knows his lying down, where he will stay or where he will sleep even. So God knows all that there is to know about, about David's actions and you know, past, present, future, he knows it. It says that God knows um, even more than just David's actions, though. It says, verse 2, that God knows the very thoughts behind the actions. We get that same idea as we read verse 4. It says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So the very words of David's mouth, no matter how quick they may have come out sometimes, God knew them. They were no surprise to him. He knew them before the thought of them could even create a word in his mouth. So God knew all of David's actions, all of David's thoughts, perfectly and fully. Now remember here, like I said, we can insert our own names into this story. So God has searched out and known each one of our ways. God has known our every past, present, and future action and thought. God could perfectly recite the words, even as I'm talking right now. So I don't know about you, but that reality doesn't always sound so uh, comforting. Well, it's a comfort to know that nothing escapes the knowledge of God, and that nothing surprises Him. It's a daunting thing to know that He knows the depths of my heart. You know, He knows the things that I've done in my past. He knows the things that I would never want the world to know. He knows the things that seem like they could crush me if even a word of it was spoken out loud. And brothers and sisters, he knows that about you too. He knows what you think of this person. He knows what you said about that person. He knows the hidden things that not all. And he knows you all. This kind of deep, intimate knowledge of us may leave us feeling afraid or ashamed or, you know, as far from perfection as one could possibly be. But let me encourage you now with what God does with that knowledge. If we look down to verse 5, it says here, You hem me in behind. So this kind, uh, David here uses the words hem me in or encircle me, um, saying basically that God's knowledge of him is so complete and so perfect that it's basically got him cornered. He's surrounded. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. But we see that God does not corner him to harm him or to accuse him or even to expose him. No, David here says that God puts his hand upon him. How amazing is that? God acts in a way that is meant to calm David and to comfort him. Now, I want to make clear here that the law that David 
was under at the time, the law that God gave, would have said that David could not have even entered into the holy places of God where his presence was. But yet we see here that David conveys this metaphorical and poetic touch of God upon a regular sinful man. So we can each look to this thing to the depths of who we are. He wants us to know that he is comforting us. And he's giving us rest from those things that we never would want to be known. The touch of God in this passage can even remind us today that though God is spirit, as John 4:24 would tell us, he put on flesh and he became someone who can be touched. And Jesus, by bearing the weight of our sin on the cross, that the sin that God knew about, that he knows all of, Jesus, by dying with that sin and rising from the dead, he can provide us the grace that is being described here by the touch of God. He, can, he provides us the grace to be fully known and yet truly loved. He provides us the grace to be forgiven of every wrong. He provides us the grace to be at peace with God. If we trust in Christ for salvation on the, on the basis of this grace, we can experience the true touch of God for eternity with all the comfort and all the rest and all the intimacy that it brings. And as we see this knowledge of God that fully knows us and that has produced this grace for us, let's look at what it says. It says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Such knowledge really is too wonderful to comprehend. You know, none of us can truly even begin to scratch the surface of God's wisdom. None of us can scratch the surface of his knowledge of us. Therefore, we must turn and worship God. It is the proper response after such an observation of his knowledge of us that is hand in hand with such tender care and mercy towards us. Now, I do say that this is the proper response because our next section of this passage is going to show us that while running away and hiding is another possible response, it's going to end up being an unproductive one. So uh, 7 through 12 is going to give us our second point under the title, God's Perfect Presence. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, one of my favorite games to play was hide-and-seek. It was always the game of choice when the brothers and the sisters and the cousins were all in one place um, and hiding. Um, And it didn't matter if you were hiding from your four-year-old sister. You always felt good when you couldn't be found. Um, And that was my case, in case you were wondering. But um, as we all got older... You know, all our family members got families, and we stopped playing the game because, you know, maybe we had things going on, more responsibilities. But I think more than that, the game became less fun because as we got older, we all got better at seeking. We all knew where we could find someone. You know, it was easier to think about that. Um, So in these next few verses, we'll see that God would put the game of hide-and-seek out of business. Though we, and as we will read here, God has never lost us. He never even has to look for us. And that's because he knows us, and he's never left our side. Let's read again, starting verse 7. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? So David opens this paragraph with two questions that are really asking the same thing. God, where can I hide from you? 
It seems that after looking at God's perfect knowledge of who he is and the depths of it, he responds rightly with praise in verse 6, but then he shows us the broken response of seeking to hide in verse 7. So this desire to hide from God, you know, is not an uncommon one. Um, There's many stories in the Bible that show it's probably actually the common response. If you think, you know, in the garden, we had Adam and Eve, the first sin. What did they do when God entered the garden? They hid. Uh, We see, you know, Jonah was hiding in the boat after disobeying God. Um, We ourselves may even try and avoid God. And, And what is the response to such a question? Does David give us a hiding place? Let's look at verse 8 through 10. It says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So David again uses some comparisons to give us the deep truths to the answers, or of the answers to these questions. Uh, it says, Whether he ascends to heaven or descends to Sheol, God's there. And I want to make clear here uh, some of these words, heaven and Sheol, uh, used here. So um, just so we better understand. So heaven used here can refer to either the sky or it can refer to space, like where life, where God is. Sheol, on the other hand, can refer to the grave, six feet deep. It can refer to the depths of the earth or it can refer to the spiritual place of death. So here, David is using these words to say, basically, at any one of these three levels, in any direction, God is there. We can't escape him in life or in death. We can't escape him in in space or in the depths of the earth. He's there. Verse 9 uses another set of comparisons, if we look. Uh, I think that these are particularly beautiful because... Um, it's poetry. So, David uses here the words wings of the morning and uttermost parts of the sea. Now the sun rose on the east. So the wings of the morning can be taken to mean the far reaches to the east. I'm not really sure which direction that is from here right now, but in the air. So, um, yeah, east and high. So what about the contrasting phrase, uttermost parts of the sea? Well, as David wrote this, he lived in a land that had the Mediterranean Sea directly to the west. So this phrase, uttermost parts of the sea, is conveying the far reaches west, but also down in the, in the depths of the water, in the depths of the earth. David tells us in verse 8 that we can't escape God vertically or spiritually. And in verse 9, he tells us that we also can't escape him horizontally. But then we come to verse 10, where David tells us once again of the grace of God that would remove all need to escape him in the first place. Well, verses 8 and 9 say, whether I'm here or there, if we look, verse 10 says, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So we again see this gracious, comforting touch of God. We see that no matter how far we may wander, even seeking to hide from him, He's never lost us. As believers, it's a comfort to know that the grace provided us in Christ Jesus is sufficient to pull us from the hole we may have dug ourselves into while trying to hide. 
to be perfect. And even as we rebel against God, when he is very present and when he is looking on us, Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin so that God can extend out that hand of grace. So Christian, if you've been hiding from God, it's time to hear the word of God telling you to stop. It's no use. You've been found. The game is over. Take the Lord's hand once more and step out of that hole. It's only through Christ that such a hand of mercy can be offered. It's only through Christ that such a gracious gift of God's leading hand is made available to lead us out of hiding. And it is only through Christ that the strong right hand of God is willing and able to hold each one of us as we seek to run away and hide. Maybe you're here today and you've not trusted Jesus for salvation. Hear me today that though you may try and hide, though you may try and hide the depths of who you are, he has extended his hand of grace to you today. Stop your running. There's nowhere to hide and there's no reason to hide. Trust in Christ today. As we push forward in our text, we come to verses 11 and 12. And we'll continue to look at God's perfect presence. It says here, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light, be about me, or the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So these verses again show us that God is truly present everywhere. It tells us that even in the darkness, the place well hidden, God's word tells us he's there. You're not alone. You have no reason to fear. And your hiding place in the dark could not even keep you from God. Because the darkness is not dark to him. Although he's perfectly present everywhere out there, know that he's perfectly present with you. And if you or your kids are afraid of the dark, this is probably a great verse to memorize. Uh, just to re- remind you that God's... The, is Let's move forward to our third section uh, that focuses on God's perfect power. This will be 13 through 18. So let's go ahead and read it again really fast. Starting in verse 13, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts. Count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So in these few verses, we begin to see David just marvel at the sheer power of God that is so well mixed with God's personal care. David recognized that his very life is something that God had orchestrated from the beginning in the womb, and yet even before that. If we look back at verse 13 carefully, we see that David again uses some contrasting ideas. David says, You formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together. 
So here when David says inward parts, he's referring to the, the inner person, the one that is unseen by human eyes. And then David turns to what is seen and says that God has knit him together. You know, it has some substance to it. So to further illustrate God's physical work in the womb, David, again in verse 15, creating his frame or his bones, your, your version might say. He describes God intricately and skillfully. He describes the location as a secret place. Or even the depths of the earth, it says. Now this is, this is not telling us that we should believe that we were all made in the depths of the earth. Uh, but we should remember again that this is poetry. Um, and that just before this, David had alluded to not being able to escape God in the darkness or in Sheol. And really that this is a continuation of that thought. David is basically saying that even as I was being formed mysteriously in the dark place of my mother's womb... God, you were there, and you were the one doing the forming. So truly, David is declaring here that God has made every part of who he is, the visible portions as well as the invisible ones. And we should really stop here and consider just what it is that David's saying. God, in in his divine majesty and holiness, who is seated in heaven and can do whatever he wants, that God has chosen to power in the creation of every single person in this room. That means that the very nuanced details that make up each one of us has divinely been handpicked by God. I mean, just think about it. He could have made us all the exact same. But in his wisdom, he chose to show his creative nature, but specific care for each one of us by giving us you know, different hair colors different eye colors, different skin colors, different blood types, different personalities, you know, different abilities and skills, and, and so much more, you name it. He's done it so that no two people are even the same. It's amazing. It's amazing to think that such a powerful God would put so much care into each one of us. And it's the same thoughts of wonder and amazement that lead David again to worship in verse 14. If we look and wonderfully made, wonderful are your works. Help but to proclaim the praises of God, not just for his powerful works out there, but for the creation of his own self, the, the divine involvement that he has had with him personally. His only logical response is to praise God and, you know, for what he has done, but for every detail of who he's made him to be. Let's not... Let our response be any less, church. Don't set your eyes on the mirror to tell yourself, tear your all you have. But look at yourselves and believe that God has put serious care into each one of you, into every detail. The world will tell you that you have to look a certain way or act a certain way to be valuable, but don't believe the world. Trust the Word of God here that says you are already valuable. When it comes to art, more often than not, the value of it is, is found by who made it and by who owns it. Not even necessarily about what it looks like, which is crazy. The Picassos of this world will tell you, or may try and sell you their, their art for millions of dollars, but you've been made by the greater artist. Possession. Let your value be found there. Let your value be found in the one who made you and in the care that he put into you and in the price already paid for you on the cross of Calvary. 
Now, while we turn our eyes back to verse 16, we'll see something else that we can praise God for. So, surprise. Um, up until this point, you know, David's really been focused on um, his own creation in the womb in this section, but um, we'll see here that God's perfect power of creation is inseparable from his perfect perception and from his perfect presence. Let's read again verses 16 through 18. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I awake and I am still with you. So while David created, or God created David in the secret place, the word here says that God had already laid out in a book all the days that he was to live. God knew David perfectly before a day of his life had even been formed outside the womb. God had not only set David's life in motion, but he cared about every one of the days enough that he would put it in a book. Now, since it's apparent that God cannot forget things and that he knows everything, and that even that God would be there for every single one of the days that are written in this book, I feel that we must conclude here that God wanted this book written just to show us again how much he cares for us. We get that same feeling as as David counts the thoughts of God. Each one of God's thoughts, it says, are perfect and precious and yet innumerable. David can't help but notice that counting God's thoughts for him alone would seem an impossible task, like counting the grains of sand. And yet it's at the end of verse 18. When he wakes up after counting God's thoughts, David finds comfort. He finds comfort that the perfect presence of God is still with him. And he finds comfort that his own affections are still with God. Brothers and sisters, see that God also has a book of your days. See that God also has innumerable precious thoughts of you. Be swept away by his careful creation of who you are, every detail. And let your heart cry out in worship of our God. He's worthy of it. Finally, let's come to our last section under the text, uh, under verses 19 through 24. Uh, We're calling it the response to perfection. Let's read it again. It says, starting verse 19, Oh, that you would from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And actually, let's stop right there. We'll leave the last two verses. Now, I'm not going to lie here and tell you that this was the easiest part of this psalm for me to, to really process. You know, at, at first glance, this, uh, this section compared to the teachings of Christ that say, love your enemies, it would seem at best a mystery and at worst a, a contradiction. Uh, but the, the more that I read this psalm and the more that I studied it and the more I looked at it, the more I could understand that there's no contradiction at all here. It became more clear how David could get from the, the state of praise before this to the apparent rage at, at the drop of a hat. Um, now, most of us in this room have probably loved someone before, whether it's a child or a spouse or another family member. 
Um, and we know what it's like to love them mess up, and they're not perfect. Um, and this love that we have for them is almost always one that is willing to, to come to the rescue when our loved one faces a bully or an enemy. David's reaction here is just the same. But it's for one who has no flaw. And although God does not need a rescue, and his enemies are nothing in comparison to his great power, David can't help but to jump at the chance to stand with the Lord. After spending the last 18 verses of this chapter staring at the perfect character of God, marveling at his perfection, marveling at his beauty, marveling at the great care that he has for each one of us, and that he's perfect, and that to hate the Lord would be to hate goodness itself and to love evil. So we can see this in how David describes these people in verse 19. We, we see he calls them wicked. He calls them men of blood. You know, they have no regard for the creation that, that God has made, so they destroy it. David can't even stand the thought of such people being near him. So he demands that they leave his presence. And he's a king, so he can do that. Then in verse 20, he says that they speak against the Lord, against goodness itself. Of it. And then in verse 21, we see that these people even rise up against God in rebellion. They don't even see the reaction of hate towards wickedness in verse 21 and 22 begin to make a little more sense when we view it in light of God's goodness and his perfection. But it's also good to stop here and, and keep in mind that David was in a very unique place in time compared to ours. God's glory was made known to the world by the victories that he gave his people and by the holiness of that people. So again, it should not surprise us that the king of God's people desired to defeat the enemies of the Lord for holiness' sake, but also for God's glory. His desire here for justice to come against evil is a good one. But as we take these verses and we move it forward to our point in time, found in a battle, fought for his people, and it is still in their holiness... The only difference is that Christ won that battle, not against flesh and blood, but against sin and death, the greatest enemy of every man. Jesus bore, came them by raising back to life on the third day, showing they had no power over him. Death could not hold him. Sin could not keep him. It had no power over him. And that victory of Christ has been passed on to his people so that they can now leave sin. And they can now leave death behind. And that is by faith in that very work of Christ. By faith we are made holy through the cleansing power of Christ's blood. So to be clear, our application here is not to hate people who hate God. Uh, For by faith he has saved us from our own rebellion. He has saved us from our own sin against him. Our prayer and our aim here should be that God would deal justly with their sin just as he's dealt with ours on the cross. We should pray for the salvation of those around us that don't know the Lord and news with them that their sins are forgiven if they would believe. But let's not forget about these last two verses. Let's read them again. Uh, Verses 23 and 24. It says here, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. So after rejecting the wickedness of God's enemies out there, David then, you know, checks his pulse. 
he, he looks inside and he says, you know, Lord, use your perfect knowledge and your, your perfect knowledge of me in my own heart and thoughts to uncover any, you know, grievous or wicked way in them. He's not content to only reject the sin of others out there, judgmentally, um, but as the great preacher Spurgeon put it, David's mindset here is this. As I hate the wicked in their way, so would I hate every wicked way in myself. David's love for the Lord leads him to reject anything that would offend such a good and perfect God, even if that thing is found in his own heart. He's willing to give up the sinful thing, the thing that may be hidden in it, trusting that God would give a grace, trusted the Lord would provide a way everlasting. While the grievous way would surely end in, in just punishment of death, where else could this other way lead but to everlasting life? David had hoped that in finding wickedness in himself and by rejecting it, that God would not reject him but that he would provide salvation for him. Church, we can find the same hope that David did. God is a good God that cares for us. And he's done it greatest by giving us his... We believe in work... When we believe in his work and we turn away from our sin and we reject the wickedness of our own hearts, we find that same hope of salvation. David was hopeful for God to provide the everlasting way. Jesus came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So let's follow Jesus rightly today and see that you cannot follow him by staying in your wicked ways, by staying and enjoying your sin. Like, let each of us look honestly at our hearts and at the wickedness in it. But let us cast it aside to receive the sweet grace of Jesus. To the grace that, that would cover it, the grace that would forgive it, the grace that would cleanse our hearts, the grace that would make our hearts new. And as verse 24 says, the grace that would lead us out of it. We must leave the wicked ways for the way of Christ. As we wrap up here, now that we know that our perfect God cares dearly for us, I want to ask you again, wants you, how will you now respond knowing that our perfect God knows you and that he's with you and that he has carefully and personally made you? Will you try to run? Will you try to hide and continue on in rebellion? Or will you turn from your sin? Will you turn and find his comforting hand of grace? Will you find it in Christ Jesus? And will you worship him? I want to encourage you this morning. Let's, let's let God's perfect character and his personal care for us draw us to reject sin and to rightly worship the Savior Jesus. And let's do it today. Don't wait. Don't wait. I'm going to be up here and talk about this. I would, I would love to do that as well. But let's pray and close our time and we'll worship together again. Father God, Lord, we are thankful and you care so dearly for us that you, you love us. And Lord, that you have known every bit of who we are, that you've been with us for every moment of it. God, that 
Every day of our life has been written in a book. Lord, we thank you that knowing the depths of who we are, God, you still love us and care for us and have shown us the grace of Christ. Lord, we pray, Father, that for those who know Christ, that they would come out of hiding if they have been. And for those who don't know you, God, I pray that they would, they would turn and surrender their lives. Father, we thank you for your word that has made it so clear that you love us. Help us to believe that today. Help us to trust Christ today. Help us to worship Christ rightly today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.